Welcome to the Board and Nerdy Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Munoz. You may know me as Fragmented Poe on YouTube and Twitter, or MonkeyC2003 on Instagram. I'm here with my brother and co-host, Corey Munoz. Today we're going to be talking about Season 1 of Star Wars The Mandalorian, an eight-episode show available on Disney+. So let's see if I can give you a spoiler-free summary of the show. There's a bounty hunter. He's a Mandalorian. Mandalorians are not common on account of a past tragedy known as the Great Purge. This Mandalorian has a cool ship, enough tech gadgets, and a cache of weapons varied enough that all Star Wars fans should feel he properly represents the Mandalorians the fandom has romanticized since, uh, what, The Empire Strikes Back when we met Boba Fett? People call him Mando because he's a mysterious loner and he doesn't like to share his name. But it feels more like a name, so a lot of people call him Mando. Get used to that. Yeah, to me, it always felt like a slur. Oh. Like, it always kind of, like, oh, does he like that? Does it put him down? But, of course, you know, he's he's so stoic that, uh, that you wouldn't know if he cared or not. Interesting. Uh, makes you wonder, is there some level of, like, galactic racism in Mando? Uh, interesting. <laughs> I, I had not thought of that. Anyways, our uh, web series follows Mando through a series of seemingly episodic adventures, uh, many of which put him in situations where he must overcome dangerous odds while defending what's important to him, his honor and his creed. Uh, we meet an assortment of interesting characters throughout Mando's journey as he discovers his destiny as a Mandalorian living the way. And so as a heads up from here on out, during today's episode, we're going to be discussing The Mandalorian in its entirety. That means spoilers. So if what I just said interests you uh, and you haven't watched the show yet, you might want to pause this episode and go and watch the whole thing. It's only eight episodes, as said, and then you can come on back and listen to this podcast without being super confused. This is the way. This is the way. I have spoken. <laughs> I'd like to jump into talking about the characters. I feel like that's the important thing to do with this show. And you really can't start anywhere else than talking about the Mandalorian himself. And just to prove that I'm going full on with the spoilers, I'd like to talk about the Mandalorian, otherwise known as Din Djarin. So, Chris, share some thoughts. Like I mentioned a minute ago, he is, he's stoic. I think he perfectly captures the Mandalorian character you were describing a moment ago. Just the embodiment of, of cool and collected and uh, lethal. Exactly what we all felt from Boba Fett in the original movies. But it's really funny because if you look back at Boba Fett in the original movies, he doesn't really do much. So it was cool to see a Boba Fett-like character. And really, I just mean the, uh, the look, the theme, to see a character themed like him doing all that cool stuff that we always imagined we might see Boba Fett do one day. But to be clear, I think it was a very good move to make him not Boba Fett to start a new story. You know, on the note of that, I actually kind of felt like the Mandalorian could have once upon a time been a pitched Boba Fett show or video game. I think it's totally possible. There there have been talks of various Boba Fett projects throughout the years. Basically, most Star Wars projects at one point were considered a Boba Fett project, like games especially. So it would it wouldn't it would make sense if that's the case. What I think happened is I think that uh the folks in charge were like people know too much about Boba Fett, but they don't know anything about the Mandalorians. So that's the more compelling TV series. Definitely. And Boba Fett himself is clouded in a lot of disagreement and mystery, depending on whether you're looking at modern canon, past canon, which involved, you know, extended universe things. Um, and so the whole debate of whether or not Boba Fett is actually Mandalorian himself or not is 
a point of disagreement in the fandom. And I actually don't know which route Disney itself is going to take that. I don't know if they've actually taken a stance on it. Disney doesn't know either. They have no idea. Yeah, because the, the movies <laughs> never specifically say that he's not Mandalorian. And I feel like the Star Wars fan base as a whole requires very concrete statements of, yes, Mandalorian. No, not Mandalorian. Or else we let our imaginations run wild. So what did you think of uh, not IG-88? Oh, man. I was so excited. When I thought it was IG-88. I was a big Bounty Hunters nerd. Uh, I loved all the guys, you know, the Boba Fett, IG-88, Dangar Bosk, Forlom, all of them. Zuckus. I was really into all of them. Then I saw it. I saw an IG unit in the poster. It's like, oh, hell yeah. They told us we're not getting Boba Fett, but we're getting IG-88. And then the show happens and it's IG-11. And so that was a little bit of a bummer for me. But I got to say... IG-11 won me over. I was really kind of iffy on the IG design, even as a fanboy, because it looks awkward. It's, it's pencil-armed, just this tall, really long, gangly He's like a thing. scarecrow tin man. Yeah, and the only time that I'd really encountered IG-88 in media was Empire Strikes Back standing on a bridge and Shadows of the Empire video game where he was absolutely terrifying. Like, that was a hard boss fight. And we get to see this IG unit, you know, rotate its body, flip its arm around, use these rotational shots that a biological being would literally kill itself trying to do. I love the way that they animated him. The way they, it's almost like like steampunk or stop motion, or there's something jerky about his motions that just legitimize that he's a he's a mechanism there on the battlefield. He screamed, this is a robot that can ruin you. And he did a really good job about it. You got to see, you know, blasters hitting him, and he wouldn't crumble right away. And you got a little bit of comedy, which isn't surprising at all based on who they got to voice him. I was really excited at the prospect of the IG unit joining the show on a full cast member level. I agree there. I was really let down when that didn't happen. It was like, what? No, get him back. And then they kind of get him back later to be their servant or whatever, to be the old man servant. It's like, no, wait. Okay, bring him on the show now for the next season. Oh, oh no. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did like the reprogramming. It got rid of the generic I'm a killer robot cliche. You know, we got a nurse assassin, which was fun. But that was, what, episode one that we had IG-11's introduction? And so you get this iconic droid, you know, type, and then it's stripped away from you right away. So I want to talk to you about the arguably second main character the the robin of this show the child character i i want you to talk about the child before i do because i have a feeling that nobody's gonna like what i have to say uh anyway wh what did you think about the child Corey? first off it's really hard keeping it straight if i'm supposed to call it the child or baby yoda social media <laughs> They should have named him earlier on. Like that that I think is a mistake. They weren't expecting him to be as popular as he became. And the show in general just made that mistake with Mando and Baby Yoda. They didn't give us names. They gave us the Mandalorian, the child, the client. You know, we were given these very vague people and so we had to create names for them. And so the showrunners created Baby Yoda as a name. You know, Mando called it Runt. We would at least then start calling it that. So I think the exciting thing about the child is that this is the first time we get to see Yoda's species as a notable presence on screen. Other than Yoda himself, there is the female Yoda species from the prequels on the Jedi Council, which I'm sure had a name. I can't remember it right Yaddle, now. So. Yaddle! 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 There we go. 
I'm a nerd. <laughs> and so really all we gained about Yoda's species from the Mandalorian was some references on age and the force. What we did encounter here is, well, with age, Yoda complains about being 750 years old, right? And, or something like that. He's less than a thousand. Uh, 750, um, 800, 900, whatever. He's super old. He's an old Muppet. And so that sounded super impressive when we were watching Star Wars in the beginning of our nerddom. Um, we learn about the force and age with baby Yoda, the child. We find out that Yoda was some 900-year-old guy in Return of the Jedi, and he makes it sound like a really big deal, which it should be. 900 years is a long time. But this show starts out by telling us that Mandalorian's target was 50 years old. And so the Mandalorian takes a job thinking, you know, some old dude, but he finds a toddler. And this toddler can't even talk yet. It literally uses human baby sound clips, which drove my wife insane. <laughs> it can kind of walk around just about as well as, what, a one-year-old, maybe a two-year-old, because it doesn't actually fall on its butt that often. Which tells me that this thing's really going to stay in that kid phase well into year 100 at least, right? And so that means that a ninth of Yoda's life was spent as a baby. I think that was inevitable, though, with any kind of dig into what species Yoda is, just because that's always been shrouded in mystery. Any kind of dive into it or dig into it is going to make it more like every other race, and you're going to go... Oh, okay, so he's just biologically really slow at aging. Cool. <laughs> like, I, I have a feeling that when it gets revealed, whatever his species is in their home planet or whatever, it's going to be like, oh, okay, now we know all Yodas live in holes like Yoda did on Dagobah. Cool, they're hobbits. I agree. It was inevitable. We were going to get a little bit of that disillusion or reality check with the Yoda lore, but I still kind of clung on to my childhood fancy that the Yoda was able to live so long because of his connection to the force, kind of like the ring in Lord of the Rings. So, you know, it was something, something extra, but now we're just finding out, no, it's a biology thing. Uh, then the other thing, I guess the natural segue there from talking about force is baby Yoda in the force. This was a creature that was able to use light side powers, force healing, and dark side powers, force choke, as a toddler. So either they're incredibly powerful by nature, and you know that kind of discredits some of Yoda's badassness because they're all immediately super powerful force. I users. think that's the case. I think that is the case. Which is a little sad for me because that undercuts a little bit of that. Oh, no one's as good as Master Yoda. Wow, Anakin surpasses Master Yoda. But the fact that it can equally use a powerful light side and powerful dark side, even though it exhausts him, that is awkward. Because when you look at the sequels, a lot of people are mad at Rey because she unlocks these powers with little to no training. And now we have a baby that can do that same power and says so like well we need to apologize to ray or luke and the rest of the jedi are just really not that cool that being said i thought that it was really fun getting to see you know yoda's species on screen i think that it's a brilliant marketing ploy i bought my daughter a giant baby yoda stuffed animal because it's the same size as her he's cute as hell like everybody loves it and i think it was foolish of them not to think it was gonna take off as a marketing thing or or maybe who knows the conspiracy behind that maybe the people in the production didn't want it to get revealed so they kept it maybe on the sidelines i i don't know why there wasn't more products available before the show came out uh, because everybody loves it. Every it, it's I credit baby Yoda with what got like everybody's mom back into the star Wars bus. 
I would say my overall issue with Baby Yoda is the same issue I have with uh, Din Djarin, uh, the Mandalorian himself. Both of our main characters are quiet. And so by choosing to have a toddler that cannot speak as the Mandalorian sidekick, we have a lot of scenes of them just quietly existing together, which isn't exactly movie magic. Yeah, it's not necessarily compelling. Do you mind if I uh, open my my can of crap on the on the child? I'm super excited for you to open a can of crap on the child. Like I acknowledged just a minute ago, I get it. Like I get the importance of the child today. I get why, you know, whoever thought of writing it into the show probably got like a nice bonus. Like I'm not putting that down. I get it. It's business. When the child was introduced, I'm like, okay, that's cute. And I was so on board with that the Mandalorian was going to turn over the child. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm that guy. I thought, I thought of course, he's going to go, oh, well, this is business. You know, here's the baby in an egg. But, but of course, no, he goes back and goes back and rescues, rescues the child. And I'm like, I'm sitting there. I'm like, what are you doing? And my wife's like, you're terrible. Then the child's around for an episode or, or two, and I'm like, I'm starting to think, okay, this whole show is turning into a hostage escort mission, like on Half-Life or something, or uh, uh, Bioshock. It's like, okay, well, now everywhere the Mandalorian goes, he has to escort this baby. And every plot of every episode has to be about this baby. Or every episode has to have a scene where they explain what happened with the baby. And I mean, I the writers did fair making it flow, but there's always that thing going on, or or there'd be action sequences happening, and I'd be like, "Wait a minute, where's the baby? Like, did they address that?" <laughs> so it just adds, like, like I say, it adds like this escort mission kind of feel to the bulk of this show, which really became the story of the show, because as I said, it's episodic to a cowboy bebop and firefly level. There's hardly any cohesive story through the whole thing other than Mando must protect the child. And I think it's really interesting going off of what you said, the writer's literally gave mando a baby think about when you had your first child all of a sudden your freedom disappeared every plan you made included well what do i do with the baby yeah exactly no (laughs) so it, it was very realistic in that regard and i guess we're both terrible people because i was 100 the same as you i was i was hoping that mando would turn over the child because I loved what that would do to the fans, to the audience. It would have been a very, <laughs> oh, this is gritty Star Wars. If Mando turned over something that cute and that iconic, it was like, yep, eat him. Which apparently everybody in Star Wars wanted to eat Yoda when he was younger. Because there were at least two characters like, what are you doing with that? Is it your pet? Are you going to eat it? Does anyone else out there think that Yoda looks like a shaved gizmo? We took Gizmo from Gremlins, and instead of feeding him after midnight, you just shaved him, shaved him nude. He'd just, he'd look like Baby Yoda. So you talked about video games, which I think is an interesting thing, because I had also kind of gone in that direction with that moment in the show where uh, the Mandalorian decides that he wants to go and rescue Baby Yoda. So he turns him over, and then he leaves. He uses the payment, which was uh, he did his his quest, his RPG quest, to go and rescue the child. He then brings it back, and he cashes it out for the quest reward of crafting materials. Beskar <laughs> metal. And then he goes to his uh, quest you know, like main quest story person, the armorer, and he hands it over and he gets his weapon upgrade. He swaps out his armor for his new armor. He gets fully loaded out. He's got a new kit of awesome armor. And then he tries to leave the planet. And this is where we get the Bioware, you know, like Knights of the Old Republic moment where you get the the close up on the Mandalorian and you get two options. And the first one says, you know, dark side points, abandon the child and go make more money as a badass bounty hunter. And then the other one says, light side points, 
go and rescue the child and redeem your soul. And he chooses light side points. It, it, it makes me think that it would be interesting to do a series where maybe at the first episode, at the end of the first episode, there's a decision tree, or maybe it's episode two or three. There's like an alternate season. So it's like this season's two episodes and the next season, it's like you can pick A or B season depending on the moral decision that the character made. Uh, the show Black Mirror kind of did that. My oh, interesting. Wife's, my wife's really into that show. I've only watched a few episodes. I, I consider it to be really depressing, so I don't like to watch it. But... No, I get you there. No, I, uh, there's a lot of shows that, uh, like The Haunting of Hill House, my wife loves that show. And I'm like, why do you watch it? It's so depressing. But overall, through The Mandalorian, in, in a bunch of episodes, you get that kind of video game feel. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it's weird to me how well the feel of kind of a game or a quest-based narrative fits with the Western motif they went with. Like, it just really fits with the, the Western theme that it would be like, like you said, you're on an equipment fetch quest, and now you're on a, a return this prisoner quest, and... It it does feel like that. Like, here's the reward at the end of the episode. Here's the reward for your mission today. It gives it kind of that mo-mo-mo feel. Yeah, the, the writers definitely played some mo-mo-mos, as you said. <laughs> but on the note of the Western bit and Star Wars feels compared to depressing show feels, when you have two main characters that don't talk and you have this Western atmosphere... That's not unlike Firefly, uh, where I think they got some extra inspiration. You run into this thing that's not traditional Star Wars. Star Wars is usually this space opera. It's exciting. It's action-packed. The universe is never dull. But this show shows that it actually does have dull moments. I, I think that that's actually one of the strengths of the Mandalorian show. From where I'm coming from, I think that's where all the Star Wars movies, but Rogue One, have really suffered in this in this aspect. Is you want to do something different, like you want to twist the Star Wars formula. The Star Wars formula is always, like you said, a space opera. It's always like flashy and peppy, and there's likable personalities flying around, and that's the twist they put in it. This is the seedy underbelly. It's the underworld. Like it's it's cold and. And uh, there's a space toilet. I would agree that that is a strength for it. They did it very well. It just felt like they doubled down on it by doing the slow Western and the no talking. I, I was shocked when it didn't have uh, an orchestral, like John Williams style soundtrack, when it was more of like like a Western, but an industrial like techno not really techno but more industrial kind of industrial western like you get the uh the real twangy western sounds but then you also get the like the bassy like weird technological sounds and stuff in the soundtrack it's very weird for star wars but it really fits for this show somehow the soundtrack took me a little while to get used to you're right i expected some epic john williams greatness and I, that definitely contributed to me feeling like it was slower than it actually was. It was interesting. It could be so different, but still feel so much like Star Wars, which I think just kind of leads us straight into talking about some of the setting things for this show. Uh, for those of you that never bothered to do the the math, this show takes place roughly five years after Return of the Jedi, which is like nine years after the first Death Star is destroyed. If you were going to put a film between the sequels and the Return of the Jedi, that's where Mandalorian should go. Exactly. But it's much, much, much closer to Return of the Jedi. And that's why we have, you know, dirty stormtroopers everywhere. That's why we have their helmets on spikes. The Empire is still around, which seeing that crumbled Empire really does help 
the sequels make more sense because one of the most jarring parts about the sequels was getting into force awakens with the the first order being a serious and big thing but when we get into the mandalorian we get to see the empire ragged and beat but we get this cool quote from the client when he's talking to them when he's kind of unveiling the whole uh, a dark force is at work here moment where he talks about how the world this world all worlds the universe is actually in a very bad place compared to when the empire was in control now keep in mind the client himself is an imperial officer so obviously he's under the delusion of the glory of the empire but he brought up some points that you could actually kind of sympathize with him you could see where he's coming from on this because he's talking about how there's rampant death and everything's kind of falling apart but the empire added this stability this uh, structure to everything i absolutely love that like i think that's one of the greatest things about mandalorian one of the great strengths that i think brings a lot of fans our age and of our generation in is that that's what we got in the novels for what was supposed to take place after return of the jedi and i mean they changed the whole skywalker saga part of it but like the state of the empire that's a great snapshot of it like i love that scene in the mandalorian where where he comes in there's stormtroopers there and and just the way they look like they've been through some real hell, uh, it, I think it really adds the right the right flavor to the aftermath of Return of the Jedi, and it adds the doubt in the Republic that Return of the Jedi didn't give us. So I have an issue with this overall setting and the timeline, and that is that the Mandalorian himself and the people he is associated with don't know what the force is when baby yoda the child uses the force there's a lot of oh what what's happening whoa that's weird and when you look at the pre are the uh the original series that makes sense because uh owen lars is talking, oh it's some ancient religion interesting yeah yeah i guess i was mostly chalking it up in my mind to being after the great jedi purge and so really the only jedi is like Yoda and the Skywalkers and Darth Vader, I guess. So Darth Vader was a teenager when Anakin died and Vader was born. And so in a very real lifetime that still exists, like Luke was born the day the Jedi died and he's a teenager through the original, you know, early 20s in the original series. Yeah, no, it uh, makes you think for sure. Basically, how it fits in with the Skywalker saga, if, along with your point, it, it's kind of like the Shadows of the Empire was, where it goes between uh, Empire and Jedi, and this one goes between Jedi and sequel trilogy. I think it's smart to do it separate from the Skywalker saga. Like like you mentioned, it has to also fit in with the timeline of it, but I like that the, the events are separate and we don't really see a lot of Jedi stuff. I think it helps it stand alone as its own like theme, as its own feels. And I think that that's maybe one of the reasons why Rogue One resonated with audiences as well. Not completely removing the Jedi, but really minimizing them. Because they are kind of OP in a Star Wars story. <laughs> They're going to be able to handle a lot of stuff. Like I would even argue that I would love a Clone Wars set live action movie someday and there's no jedis anywhere and you're a clone trooper fighting scary battle droids i, I would love that we almost got that in the mandalorian where true, we got true. to see the uh, flashbacks where the droids were crushing his home they were scary and we even have the droids that were um, guarding the prison ship that were terrifying so we got to see these droids being scary which is something that you never really got to see before because a lightsaber would just cut through a bunch of them or you know obi-wan force push down goes five battle droids right no i uh, i absolutely loved the sequences that showed battle droids in this uh in the form of the flashbacks made them seem so menacing and scary it kind of reminded me of playing like battlefront 2005 back in the day <laughs> <laughs> the just the uh, super battle droids stomping around. I would definitely like to see that visited more. 
and who knows, maybe we'll get it in, in more seasons to come. So I want to mention a few things about the actual production of The Mandalorian, because it's actually quite fascinating. It goes all the way back to the uh, prequel trilogy. And I'm sure that you remember hearing about this, Corey, because it was big news at the time. But when episode one was rolling around and, and they were working on that, there was it was pretty common knowledge that Lucasfilm was looking at doing a TV series after the prequel trilogy wrapped. So George Lucas at, was definitely hands-on trying to develop a Star Wars TV show. At the time, it was called Star Wars Underworld. And the idea was to explore the seedy underbelly of Star Wars. And recently, a bunch of footage of this has leaked on the internet. And you can actually find footage from Star Wars Underworld. And they only shot like a few pilot episodes or something like that. I don't believe any episode is available in its entirety. And only like a small section of it has the effects completed. But the idea was Lucasfilm was trying to figure out how to film a Star Wars looking special effects heavy sci-fi blockbuster action flick without spending a ton of money on it. They were trying to figure out the cheapest way to film that. So it would be lucrative for a TV show format where you're just going to do seasons and seasons and episodes and episodes. It wouldn't be sustainable to do it like they do a Hollywood movie. And so his thought was, because of course it was, you can throw them on a green screen set and you can throw uh, whatever practical props you need right there on the green screen set and do the rest in the computer. The thing that made it not work was the technology of the time. Jump forward to The Mandalorian. What makes it really fascinating from a production perspective is they basically reinvented projection uh, technology, uh, rear projection technology. If you watch like an old James Bond movie, they'll be in the car and you'll see like it looks kind of phony. You might describe it just as like, oh, we're watching a 70s movie. But why it looks like that or like why an old King Kong movie looks like that is because the, the method at the time was you put a big screen up. You project whatever special effects are going to happen on the screen, and you have the actors sit or stand in front of it, right? You have the actors sit in a car that's on the studio lot, and you have a projector running behind the car, throwing up a big projection of the road that they're on and somebody driving on the road. Um, that's what gives it that look. Anyway, for The Mandalorian, they completely reinvented that concept in the form of a giant donut of a... Uh, an AMOLED screen. So an AMOLED screen, which many of us have on our phones, um, each pixel is its own light bulb that can do all the colors. And when when you want the color black, you shut it off altogether. So when you have dark things, it's not producing as much light. To do this on a huge scale like that, they were able to 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 tie the background in using, I think they even use the Unreal Engine to tie the background to the camera they're using on set. So in The Mandalorian, for example, you'll have the Mandalorian sitting in the cockpit of a speeder, but everything behind him is an, it's an AMOLED screen. It's a giant TV screen, and they throw whatever background. They throw Tatooine up there, and then they, uh, they have it tied to the camera. So if the director wants to tilt the camera a bit, the background corresponds just like they're actually on that location. And that's what enabled them to shoot a TV show in a Star Wars kind of cinematic quality. It was, in fact, the Unreal Engine. <laughs> Excellent. I thought so. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, and it's kind of along the lines of... Uh, it's kind of a, a jump beyond what uh, James Cameron did in Avatar where he had a, uh, a camera that was tied into the computer so he could move his camera and it would move the camera in the computer. This is a very similar thing, except they're projecting the background behind the uh, actor on a giant screen. And so they don't have to do any of that green screen stuff in post. They don't have to rotoscope anybody out of the frame. It's already there. The spaceship they're in is already part of the frame. It's really fascinating, and I hope it works out because the rumor has it that Disney is pushing full steam ahead with this tech. Other thing on production that I think needs to be mentioned is episode length was random in this show. Interesting. 
most things are based on TV slots where it's okay, this is a 30 minute show, this is a 50 minute show, the hour show, something like that. But this one had everything from that. Okay, this episode's 30 minutes, this one's 35 minutes, this one's 40 minutes, this one's. And so there's no consistency on any of it. I have to admit, I didn't notice the regular episode length. That's that's weird. I don't I don't like that. Just from a <laughs> just from a I'm gonna sit down and watch a show perspective. So Corey, what was your favorite? If you had to pick a scene in the in the show or or a sequence or a segment, if you had to pick one thing out of the show and say it was your favorite, what do you suppose that you would select? Um, let's see. My one thing has got to be the ATST. Ooh, ooh, nice. The that was the first time that an ATST has ever actually scared me. Return of the Jedi, they're kind of scary, they're powerful, but a whole bunch of Ewoks were able to kill them with some chopped down trees. But this one was menacing and it was probably because it was at night and had the glowing red eyes and you had a badass like mando saying oh no 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 no, those are scary i have that written down on my notes too i have it just loved the episode with the atst so how about you your favorite scene narrow it down to one i can easily narrow it down to one thing and it was at the very beginning of the show i think it might even be the first scene they're in the bar and the Mandalorian's involved in a disagreement and he ends up pulling the guy through the door and slamming the door shut on him and it cuts him in half. Uh, from that moment, I'm like, okay, the tone's set. I know what to expect from the Mandalorian. And that's kind of one of his favorite moves. He uses a door to kill two people, well, not kill, to take out two combatants. If you think about it, it actually has happened in Star Wars a number of times. Yeah. The one that jumps to the top of my head is the, the Rancor. Rancor. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no, Timmy! <laughs> Which is just a sad, sad story. So then let's go the opposite direction of the like. What would you call one scene that you just don't like? One scene I just don't like? Well, I've, I've already rambled about Baby Yoda, but that I have issues with Baby Yoda as a character and as a plot uh, component. Uh, I think we kind of rambled about it a bit earlier about uh, it feels like video game quests. Go here, get this, go here, pick up that. But as a result of that, some episodes can feel kind of lackluster compared to others. And and to be clear, I enjoyed the whole show. Like every time I sat down, I got the Star Wars feels and I enjoyed the Star Wars Western. But sometimes you get to the end of the episode and you're like, oh, OK, yeah, an armor upgrade. Sweet. <laughs> we'll tune in next week. <laughs> What what would you say uh, was an element that you least enjoyed about The Mandalorian? I think I already, kind of like you, ranted out a few of my issues already. And so for the sake of something new for me to complain about, <laughs> the use of legendary. Mando is informed that his reputation is legendary. As soon as Mando comes back, and he's like, oh, you did it. Good job. Here's your payment. You're legendary. All these other people, they hate you. You're legendary. It's like, well, what made him legendary? Going and retrieving Baby Yoda from a mercenary village base thing? I mean, the IG unit almost did that. Just send a couple more people, and they could have easily just taken that whole thing down. How does that make one hunter legendary? And then, to make it worse... On another episode, you know, another escort quest where it's um, follow Toro Calican, whatever that guy's name was, and help him on his first hunt to join the Bounty Hunter uh, Guild. The lady he's after, Fennec, I think, she says, why settle for me when you can turn in Mando? Your reputation would be legendary. And so it's just like, uh, is is are we using legendary right maybe they're trying to wink at the star wars nerds they're like you guys like star wars legends don't you legendary okay you know what if they went on record and declared that's why they were doing it i'd be okay with it but from my seat <laughs> these bounty hunters are getting legendary as like a reputation marker 
one thing that I really liked about the Mandalorian on my second viewing was the droid Q90 or Zero, Q90, the, the guy they called Zero, one of the scoundrel guys on the Prison Break episode, the, the pilot, because I found out that that droid was voiced by the IT crowd's Moss. So oh, no way! <laughs> Richard, um, and I can never say his name right, Ayuadi, Ayuadi, I think is his name. I've already had my milk. Exactly. <laughs> and so he's the voice of the droid. And so as soon as I found that out, it's like all I could hear. And it was just, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, dude. I didn't, I didn't realize. Wow. Um, I enjoyed that droid. He reminded me of Forlom a lot, like just generic, like henchman droid. Totally reminded me of Forlom. I had to look it up. I did that. That's in my search history today, where I confirmed <laughs> that Zero was not a Lom type droid. I had to confirm it because it was like, oh dang, they're kind of similar. I loved that this show had the horrible original trilogy screens, you know, on the computers and in the scopes and everything. It wasn't polished technology, and and that made it. 100% feel like it was in the proper Star Wars universe. Making the original Star Wars, George Lucas said he wanted it to be a used future. Everything is secondhand and cobbled together and pre-owned, and that's what makes Star Wars have that feel. And yeah, they definitely nailed that in uh, Mandalorian. They had the used future, and they had the aliens. There was the alien variety that made you feel like you weren't just in some human universe with a couple of weird-looking creatures. Now joining us on the Bored and Nerdy podcast is my wife, Kayla, and we're going to discuss connections with The Mandalorian to some of the animated Lucasfilm material. Hello. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> So just to jump in here, I think the biggest question that's on a lot of people's minds, because it was right at the end of The Mandalorian, what is with that black lightsaber? You mean the best part of the entire series? That 10 seconds where I absolutely lost my mind? Oh, man. So, yeah, that's the dark saber. And ever since I watched The Clone Wars, I have always wanted to see a live-action version of that weapon, just because it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I mean, admit it. It was cool. It was really cool. It looked really cool on film, yeah. Uh, Corey, you've seen The Clone Wars, right? Actually, I've only seen parts of The Clone Wars because oh. that, uh, that fell into an awkward release time. And so I've watched probably like five episodes, the, the first five. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, I don't think you've seen it then. It doesn't really make that big. It makes like a cameo appearance in The Clone Wars where it really has you know, uh, Hold is in uh, the Rebel show, where it, that's where it's really explained. But you see it once in the Clone Wars, and it's, uh, it's wielded by Pre Vizsla, the leader of the Death Watch Rebellion. Oh my goodness. So the Darksaber was made probably about a thousand years before the whole Skywalker saga. It was made by the first uh, Mandalorian to be allowed into the Jedi Order, right? When Paz Vizsla died, and he wanted the saber to go to the Mandalorians, right? Well, the Jedi took it to Coruscant and they put it in a museum. And then eventually the Mandalorians stole it back. And now it's kind of like a sign of leadership. Like the, the main Mandalorian has that. So we know that Moff Gideon has it now. The last person we saw with it was when Sabine Wren gave it to Boko Katan. Um, all Rebels characters. I highly suggest you watch it. Great show. Oh, from the Rebels animated series? Yes. Interesting. I've not seen any of Rebels. I've seen a good chunk of the Clone Wars, but I've not seen any of Rebels. Well, it's 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 Clone Wars, Episode 3, like Order 66, and then Rebels right after that. And it really shows, like, the struggles of, like, a surviving party. And so to connect some dots of what you're saying then... What we get from the Mandalorian is Moff Gideon has the Darksaber. We, mm -hmm. We've seen that. And what we learn from Mando himself is that he knew Moff Gideon from when 
the Imperials were killing off all the Mandalorians. He was one of the officers in charge of that. That's how he knew his name. That's how he knew what was going on. And so we as viewers then with your information can infer that Moff Gideon was not only involved in the destruction of the Mandalorians, but he looted the corpses. He he took the dark saber from oh, them. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was his prize, absolutely. And that's that that's such a good tie-in too, because we hear about the fall of Mandalore, but the last time we saw these guys in uh Rebels is they were on the uprise. Like, how did they get all the best guard? Because everybody's dead and they stole their armor. I want to know that story. I also want to know that story. I'm pretty sure it's been confirmed that Sabine Wren is gonna be in season two of The Mandalorian. Oh, interesting. So did you notice any other references to Clone Wars than the Darksaber, or was that pretty much it? No, that was pretty much it, and just kind of the feel, you know, there's the Dave Filoni-ness. Yes, I'm going to use that as a term. The Dave Filoni-ness of it all, like, you can definitely tell it's from the same family. Like, there aren't, like, unless you do some really deep digging, like, for creatures and what that, there aren't really that many Clone Wars references. Just for people who might not know, Dave Filoni is the same guy that did the Clone Wars. Did he do Rebels as well, or just Clone Wars? I'm pre- oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's involved in Rebels. But yes, Dave Filoni is he's very well involved in Star Wars. He's done Clone Wars, he's done Rebels, he's done The Mandalorian. Others might know him from his work on Avatar, The Last Airbender. Cool reference there. You know, Dave Filoni directed some of the best episodes, in my opinion, of Avatar, The Last Airbender. And he loves the show so much that he actually threw in a Clone Wars, like, shout out. There's a clone trooper in Clone Wars nicknamed Oppo. And he's got the arrow on his helmet going down on his forehead, just like Oppa. Oh, interesting. (laughs) That's amazing. Fun little tidbit for you. So if you've ever seen a production photo of John Favreau sitting with George Lucas, there's probably a guy with them with the cowboy hat, and that's Dave (laughs) Filoni. The infamous cowboy hat. He wears it to everything. You find a picture of Dave Filoni, he's in a cowboy hat. So, Kayla, what do you think it is about Clone Wars that resonates with the fans so much? Well, for me, like, it's really the fleshing out of the relationships. Say, between movies or episodes two and three, it goes from Padme, like, being, you know, reasonably creeped out by this guy to, you know, I die for him. And that's nice and fleshed out in the series you realize that oh wow their relationship you know is lovely and same time straining and he does struggle with having a wife and keeping her secret from the jedi council and then very much padme gets a lot more airtime to kind of show that she is a really awesome strong character then you also have the backstories that you've heard of in you know episode two between anakin and obi-wan like, you know, all the, like, little war quibs, you know, you saved me here, and blah, blah, blah. We get to actually see those. And it's a huge just relationship builder and just kind of justifies the, the, the mode switches, the mood switches of Anakin in Episode 3 a bit more. You have the introduction of Soka, who is literally the heart and soul of that show. So excited to see her in Season 2. Your comments about Ahsoka uh, fit perfectly into the last thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, thank you again so much for joining us, by the way. Of course. I wanted to ask you about live-action Clone Wars and what you think about Season 2 having supposedly having Ahsoka in it. Do you think that's what we're building to? Is that what you want? Is What, what do you think about it? Well, of course, that's what I want. I, I am the simple Star Wars fan. The fan service is for me. But, like, I understand that a lot of times that does not make the best story. Oh, my gosh. Last movie, you know, be highlighted on that example. But I love her character so much that they can't do her wrong. You know, like, they, they have to do it right. And if it's just, gosh, I I, I have such high hopes that I don't want to be let down that I can't even think of it being bad. If that makes sense. Absolutely. No, that makes sense. <laughs> Years ago, there was this internet thread of like dream casting for if Clone Wars was live action. And Rosario Dawson was Ahsoka. And she's going to be Ahsoka. 
Thank you, universe. Thanks for giving me that one. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see how that how that's handled. So, Corey, while we have our guest here, did you have anything you wanted to ask her before we let her go? I think the only real thing that our audience would truly benefit from that hasn't already been covered is and in short of a message as you can give, tell us how much you like Baby Yoda. Um, as a character, he's useless, but as a fuzzy thing, I want to snuggle with it and drink hot cocoa by a fire. I think that is the best way to end <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Kayla. I really appreciate your time. Of course. Awesome. We appreciate your expertise in, in the history of the Clone Wars. Well, well, thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. You guys have fun being nerdy. We look forward to having you on our show sometime in the future. This has been Bored and Nerdy Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Corey, what are we going to be talking about next episode? Have we decided on that yet? Is that even a discussion we've had? Actually, we have had that discussion, and I was thinking about it from the shoes of our listeners. You know, they love us, so they're sitting here thinking, man, I really love these guys, and I can't wait to hear more. I wonder what's next <laughs> on board and nerdy. Oh, I got a treat for you guys. We'll be discussing Raised by Wolves, an HBO show that just finished airing its first season in October 2020. And what it's about, you might be wondering. I have no clue. I haven't seen it. I'll get on that. Chris is a big fan, but I'm not going to let him talk about it at all. He'll spoil everything, and then you'll be here for another 20 minutes. So feel free to watch it with me, you know, on our own time, not actually together, <laughs> so that you're ready for episode four of Bored and Nerdy. Awesome. I can't wait to talk about Raised by Wolves. So you can follow us on Instagram at borednnerdy. We're also on YouTube by the same name. You can find us on pretty much every podcast platform. We'd really appreciate a subscribe, a follow, uh, a rating, a comment. Uh, let us know what you think and what you think we should talk about. Uh, you know, it's all about the audience for sure. And so we're very curious uh, what you folks want to hear about. We hope you're a little less bored and a little more nerdy.